0: You may be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third, newly shorn. Uh, I was here preparing, uh, finishing up the sermon yesterday in my office, and our missions pastor, LJ, was doing some moving around in her office, and so I heard her upstairs. I said, Oh, I'll just go up and say hello to LJ. So I just kind of came in like I normally would, and she was terrified absolutely terrified. She thought someone had broke into the church office. Oh, that is is not the case. Um, I am Derek, and I am a pastor here at Third, I promise. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Among American Gods. Thank you for joining us. This summer, as we've worked through this series, what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the Ten Commandments, look at them deeply, and, and ask, how do these commandments confront the gods of our American life? Last week, we looked at the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. Ed helped us recognize uh, that we need to respect and receive authority from others, that we have the gift of our own influence to offer to them as well. And he showed us how the commandment expanded uh, far beyond just familial relationships of authority. It was challenging. It was good. This week, we turn our attention to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. After I graduated seminary from Gordon-Conwell, my wife and I had a great opportunity to live in the University of Edinburgh, Scotland for a year. I went to the University of Edinburgh for that year, worked on a THM, and we would spend most of our times during the week when we were done with, she worked at Starbucks, I went to school, we would spend most of the time at a place called the Melville. It's just a pub in our neighborhood where we lived, near Dean Bridge, and uh, the, the Melville is known for many things. Uh, one of those is raucous discourse. Um, and so, and so uh, we would talk about anything there. It was amazing. It was one of the most incredible places to have uh, deep and wandering conversations. But during one of those raucous discourses, a friend of mine named Les uh, said something. Uh, we were talking about politics, and he said something that just, just struck me. He said this. He said, the best way to understand America, Derek is to understand that America is a culture of death. America is a culture of death. I was immediately offended. I rattled off many of the good things America had done, such as, for instance, help ensure the future existence of Scotland a couple of times. argued for the benefits of a capitalist democracy, and I think I held my own in the discussion, but as I walked home across Dean Bridge that night, um, something resonated in me. Uh, I knew that some of those arguments rang hollow. Something about what Les said uh, felt true. It stuck in my craw. And as I prepared for this week, I was reminded of Les uh, again, uh, because here are some statistics I want to share with you that, that might define what a culture of death might look like. 91 percent, it's the amount of time that we as a country, United States, has spent at war since 1776. I did, not, I did not know about this until I did the research. 221 of our 242 calendar years, we've been warring with someone. No U.S. president technically qualifies as a truly pre- peacetime president. And the only time that we had five years without being at war was during the Great Depression, the Great Isolation. 182,000, the number of civilian deaths from the Iraq war, non-combatants. This is a study called The Human Cost of War in Iraq, uh, put out by John Hopkins, the University of Baghdad and MIT. 40 million violent crimes reported in the US since 1990. 270,000 gun-related deaths just in the last 10 years in the United States. 10 million men and women physically abused by an intimate partner, domestic violence in the U.S. last year. That's 20 people per minute. 45 million abortions since 1970. And since they've been keeping this and tracking this data, 50% of those abortions are by people who self-identify as Catholic, evangelical, or Protestant. 64,000 drug overdose fatalities last year recorded by the CDC. 45,000 annual suicides in the United States. This has been steadily increasing for 30 years. $2,500, the max condolence payment to an Iraqi family for the death of one of their family members. Les Les was right. He, He was right. America is a culture of death. Violence to other human beings is one of the most enduring elements of the American story, whether it's Native genocide, the horrors of slavery, and sadly, you know what? America is not alone. We are not unique in the world in that. This is the tragedy of the human stories. This is why Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? But when death is our culture, when 91% of the time we are at war, death becomes the air we breathe, it becomes the water that we swim in, and it makes it almost impossible to see it rightly. That's, I think that's why Les's words stung me so deeply that night at the Melville. And that's why I'm grateful for the, the, the sixth commandment. It's a gift to us. So let's pray as we uh, study God's word together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. You are the author of life. In a world that is marked by death, we proclaim together in this place that you alone— have the words of eternal life. And we ask you in this time, would you provide for us a glimpse of your very life and a glimpse of the life that you long for us? Come, O oh God, and teach us to be like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. You can read the scripture with me on the slides. Not all of the scripture that I'm gonna read is in your bulletin this morning, but the selections come from Exodus 20:13. Matthew 5, 21 through 24, and Matthew 5, 9. You shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled then come and offer your gift blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of god this is the word of the lord thanks the three questions that are going to frame our time together as we examine this text the scripture what does this commandment really mean that's our first question second What idol drives us to violence? And how can we, as the covenant people of God, make peace in a world marked by death? Those are the three questions that are going to frame our time together. First, what does this commandment really mean? Let's look at the immediate context. There are just two words in the Hebrew that actually make up uh, this sixth commandment, and they're translated very easily Never murder. (laughs) Just two words. Never murder. And what's happening here and what's being said to Israel is it is a prohibition. It prohibits humans in covenant with Yahweh to ever kill for their own purpose or their own ends. We are never to take a human life for our own self-interest. There's a deeper context. Where does this idea originate, this desire to protect human life? Where does it come from? Well, it originates like almost everything that we've talked about in this commandment series in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the very beginning of our story, where human beings are described as people that are made in God's image. Every human made in God's image. Therefore, every human being has an innate value and worth. By Genesis chapter 9, though, after the fall, by Genesis chapter 9, murder has become so rampant in the human story that God has to step in and he institutes just reciprocity, life for a life as a deterrent. And we read this in Genesis 9, every human will have to give an accounting whether whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. What Genesis 9 is saying and what the Old Testament says in its prohibitions against murder are this, if you erase the image of God in someone else, The image of God in you is forfeit. That's what Genesis 9 is saying. And whenever we do violence against another person, what we're doing, we are dehumanizing them. We are robbing them of life. We are robbing them of dignity. We're robbing them of value. We are making them less than human. This commandment is a shield around the dignity of human life. That's what's happening in Exodus 20, 13. The image of God in others must be protected, it must be honored. How does the New Testament further this prohibition against murder? In the Sermon on the Mount, which we just read, Jesus says, well, you've heard it said that if you murder someone, you'll be held in judgment. I tell you that if you're just angry with someone, then you are subject to judgment. We find that Jesus and the New Testament, when talking about this, always raise the bar, never lowers it. You You can murder someone, Jesus says, in your heart. Really, Jesus? I thought I was going to be off the hook this week. Now, you know, you can murder someone in your heart. Why? Why? Why is that murder? Why are, have you violated the sixth commandment with anger in your heart? Because what you are doing is you are dehumanizing an image bearer. It's still the same thing. I love John Dunn's quote on this: "Any man's death diminishes me, for I am a part of mankind." The New Testament is rather unified in its, its ethic of love and nonviolence. This is why everybody from Martin Luther King to Gandhi look to, look to Jesus. They sit at his feet in the New Testament to discover what nonviolence looks like. So for us, it means that dehumanization through violence, whether that is external or internal, has no place in the kingdom of God and no place in the church. I think this is best captured by the Beatitude in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. So to answer our question, the prohibition in Exodus 20, 13, which was to never murder flowers throughout Scripture into this beautiful kingdom calling where you and I are to be agents of peacemaking as God's children in the world. That's what this commandment is about. So so if that's the case, um, what's the problem? (laughs) Why are so few of us peacemakers? Why do I hate so many people in my heart? What what then is the idol that drives us to violence? Something has to do it. What is it? Remember, Remember, as we've been talking about idols, idols do not start off as bad things usually. They start off as what? Good things, right? They're good things that become God in our life. We invest them with a significance that belongs to God alone. They become ultimate for us. So, what is the ultimate here? What's the American God? It's this it is life itself. Not life as God sees it or defines it. The idol, this idol, is a version of life that has become twisted by self interest. It's committed to a very narrow view of human flourishing. My flourishing, my life, or corporately, can be any group of human beings. It could be a family, a church, a nation. Our flourishing is the only flourishing that really matters in the world. Any threat to this life, these things that I find life in, any threat to them must die. Let me give you two examples. On a national level, the American way of life in the world must be protected at all Costs so the state uses their considerable course of power, war, diplomacy, sanctions, threats to protect and advance national self-interests. This is just called statecraft. The flourishing of the United States is the only flourishing that really matters. This is what every nation does. But we must remember, Christians, it is idolatrous, it is a product of the fall, it's a result of sin. It comes at the destruction of image bearers in the world, and it will not be a mark of the new creation. On a personal level, what does this look like? It looks like this. My life is the life that matters. My significance, my status, my flourishing. One of the ways you can tell that life is the idol behind this is because it's the thing that's threatened, right? When we move towards other people in violence or anger, It is almost always motivated by a fear of some kind, right? We are scared of some kind of death. Something's going to threaten the thing that gives us life, right? It might be a death to my reputation. It might be a death to my resources. Death to my pride. Death to my rights, my status. Death to my comfort. And when when, when those things are threatened, I lash out in anger. I want to defend myself. Violence comes out of us. This is what every human being does. And remember, church, it too is idolatrous. It's a product of the fall, a result of sin. It, it results in the destruction of human beings. And it will not be a part of the new creation. The idol is life itself, a twisted version of life, corrupted by self-interest. So, so what do we do? we is there some gospel hope in this? Is there, is, what is the hope that we have? How do we make peace as God's covenant people living in a world that is marked and saturated by death? There are a lot of things we could talk about. We just have time to talk about two. First is this. We, we have to cultivate culture of life. It's our responsibility. And the second is that we need to curate Uh, reconciled relationships. We need to tend to them. The first, cultivating culture of life. Here's what I want you to hear, church. America is going to do what America is going to do. Nations are going to do what nations are going to do. But one day, America is going to fall into the ruins of history. It will. And here's what's beautiful. We will endure. You will endure. We will continue to be God's countercultural life, the new humanity in the world. And we can't ignore the fact that at the center of our faith lies the resurrection, the death of death, the end of dehumanization in all of its forms for all time. This is who we are, citizens of a new age, a kingdom not marked by weapons of war like swords, but marked by plowshares, artifacts of cultivation, of growth, of renewal, if we're going to be God's counterculture of life, at least two things, at least two things have to happen. First, we have to defragment our theology of life. This is what I mean. How many of you have ever had a computer? Everybody? Good. Okay. Have you guys ever had to defragment your hard drive before? Yeah, it's like one of the most annoying things ever. It takes hours. And what happens is on your hard drive, all these little pieces of data, right? They're supposed to be in one place. Something happens to get splintered. They're not where they're supposed to be. So you go to open your program and it doesn't work. And what defragging your hard drive does is it takes all those little pieces and it puts them back where they're supposed to be. It realigns them back together into the cohesive whole so that when you click on the program icon, it works. We need the same thing for our theology of life because it has become fragmented, where factions of the church choose which aspects of God's commitment to life we find more important than others. This can't exist. We can't do this much longer. We have to to, um, recover an integrated, holistic, biblical theology that honors all of life from the cradle to the grave. A cohesive whole. Our witness in the world is at risk if we do not. Now, I don't know what this looks like, and you definitely cannot unpack it in one illustration (laughs) subpoint. Okay, so I'll tell you that. I will tell you this let me just tell you a little bit about what it's not. It is not choosing what human lives we deem worthy of humanity. We don't get to say to the prisoner, to the man in poverty, to the military enemy, to the unborn child, to the illegal eager immigrant, you're the one who really has worth and value. They all do because they're made in God's image. Scripture speaks deeply to caring for all of them. It is, it is not, whatever, whatever this reclamation is, it is not Choosing the place of God ourselves. Identifying, these are the humans that I think have the most worth. This is the one that matters. Hopefully, we'll merge as a vision that is pro all of life, that, that works against war in the world, against abortion in the world, against the death penalty in the world. Catholics are great in this. Catholics are phenomenal on this point. They take it beyond just the big uh, ticket items, right? They go really, really deep in their theology of life. And, um, and the Reformers did this as well, but they see life and health as precious gifts from God. And so it's also the avoiding of excess food, tobacco, alcohol, medications, the avoiding of excess speeds when you drive. There are so many myriad of ways to celebrate and honor life in our theology. The world doesn't know that about us. They think we care about a few, if we don't defragment our theology of life, our witness is at stake. Second, it's this, to cultivate a culture of life. We don't, we don't just have to um, align our theology with what scripture teaches. We also have to pour our lives out. We, we've got to die. We've got to pour our lives out for others. I love Calvin on this. Listen, to this, this is beautiful. If you do not, according to your means and opportunity, study to defend your neighbor's safety, by that inhumanity, you violate the law. is that incredible? I love the active preservation of the life of others in Calvin. According to my means, my opportunity, what I'm supposed to study, like for an exam, to de- defend the dignity, the worth, and the value of the life of others. This is a vision for flourishing. This this could lead to a counterculture of life in the world. If you don't want to worship your life, you know the best thing that you can do for it? You can lose it. You can give it for other people. You can die to yourself. There's this book. This is beautiful. It's a hard book to read. It's called When Children Became People. And it's a story of a time when the church did this. In ancient times, people would just discard their children when they became too much of a financial burden on the family. Why? Because literally the rest of the family might be at stake. And who took those children in? Who claimed them as her own? The church. That's how orphanages were formed. When children were sick, discarded by their families because they couldn't be cared for and might be a threat to the success and the flourishing of the family, they were discarded, thrown, left on the side of the road, Who claimed them as her own? The church. That's how hospitals came to be. During the plague, if one of your family members got the plague, do you know what happened? You You would force them out of the house in the gutters. Why? Because it could kill the rest of your family. Who picked people up out of the gutters and tended to them to our own deaths? That's how we got the plague. It was the church. We have lost this vision where we are the the community that bears and cultivates life in the world. So let me ask this question. What, What are you cultivating and creating in the places where God's called you? Your work, your family, your neighborhood. Is there more life there because you are there? What about the institutions that you've made, or you run, or you work for? Are they becoming more places where dehumanization is addressed and life happens, or less? We become peacemakers when we cultivate a culture of life in the world. We also become peacemakers when we curate (laughs) reconciled relationships. So now let's move to the interpersonal level. Any threat— to my personal idol, right? The life that I cling to will be met with violence. And that violence is usually anger. Anger can be difficult to understand, um, it's a secondary emotion. Anger can be rooted in love. Apparently, I've never experienced it, but it, I, I hear in the Bible that it is possible to be angry and not sin. It's my theological unicorn. Right? It's like, I, uh, people tell me they exist, I've never seen one myself. I, I don't know how to do this, but this also makes anger complicated because there's some good in it. And, and most of us operate off of this older paradigm of anger. Uh, there are two kinds of people, those who get angry and those who don't, the hotheads and the calm people. Um, neurophysiologists have done great work in the last two decades um, and that's actually not the case. Here are the, two, here are the two paradigms that they put out for us, the two kinds of people, those who hold in our rage and those who let our rage out. And they have these uh, wonderful categories that I think that are helpful for us as we process what does murder in our hearts look like? What does anger look like? The first category is this, it's rage, it's acting your anger. Rage is acting your anger. It's when you feel it, you actualize it externally, and it results in the emotional harm of others, the physical harm to others. Typically, rage uh, is, is, is so explosive, it t- typically has to be dealt with at some point. It's hard to hide it. My family was really good at it for a long time, um, but eventually it becomes noticeable. And this can be in any of us. I love my children. I remember this moment two years ago. Fisher had been trying to hurt his brother significantly, <laughs> um, I don't know, stabbing him with a fork or something, something that they were doing. Don't stab your brother with a fork. Don't stab your brother with a fork. Okay, done. About five minutes later, what happens? Remy starts crying. He stabbed him with a fork. I come stomping from the, um, the table in a rage. Just, I don't even know what I'm gonna say or do. I just know I need to get to him quickly. Needs to know I'm angry. And he turned around. I don't know what my, was on my face. I don't know. But my, my five-year-old boy turned around and he screamed in terror. And, uh, and I just, I immediately redirected my anger, just, was like, I need to hug him now. And so I just hugged him, and you know what he said to me? He said, for a moment, Daddy, I thought you were a monster. And I told him I was. Daddy, is, sin, sin is lodged here in your father's heart. And sometimes I can be a monster. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? What you did did not deserve to make you feel scared that's rage. Resentment is different. It can be just as damaging, if not more so. Resentment is not acting your anger. It is thinking your anger and thinking it a lot. (laughs) That's resentment. It's an indirect way of murdering people in our hearts. We give up on them. I didn't realize how much resentment was a part of uh, Southern culture until I'd lived here for Solid 20 years. It's kind of what we do, isn't it? It's kind of what we do. I've lived in the South my whole life. This is kind of what we do. We, uh, let me, let me uh, we'll do a little, little linguistics class, maybe, in Southern culture real quick. We have a phrase, uh, bless her heart. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, bless her heart. Let me tell you what that means. Let me interpret that. It, I am murdering you right now in my heart, uh, but I could never tell you that. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to write you a thank you note and cook you a meal, something like that. that, that's, that is, that's resentment. That's, that's the indirect Southern culture. And yet, and yet, without acting it out loud, we can assassinate people's character. We can assassinate their dreams, their reputation. And a lot of you feel like, well, I'm not, I don't have an anger issue. You, we absolutely do. <laughs> uh, these researchers did a great job. You've got three kinds of people, people that are engaging in healthy conflict regularly, which is not us. <laughs> it's, not, it's not us. In case you're wondering, if it, is, it tends not to be us. We're a pretty conflict-avoidant culture. And if you're if you're not engaging in healthy conflict regularly, you're either a rager or a resenter, and it's eating you up on the inside, or other people on the outside. And here's here's the real question God has for us: what are we going to do with our wounds? What do we do with our wounds? Unreconciled anger is the death of love. This is why we have to address it. Unreconciled anger. It's the death of community. There is a third way. It's called reconciliation. I'm not going to go deeply into this. I'd actually encourage you to listen to the last 10 minutes of of Ed's sermon last week because he unpacked it so well. Matthew 5.23 says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something to get you, then you leave it there. More important than finishing this act of worship is a different act of worship, being reconciled to the one who hates you one who is angry with you. This is beautiful, this is the third option. Instead of acting your anger or thinking your anger, you can healthily express it. You can healthily express your anger. I love that the goal of reconciliation between humans in in the New Testament is not a lack of conflict. It's the presence of peace in our relationships, which usually comes through great conflict. How do we do this? We need Jesus, y'all. How do we do this? We need Jesus. Anger, hear this, church. Anger has a proper place. There's a place it belongs, and it is at the feet of God. There are psalms. This is basically what the psalms do. The psalms are places where the the psalmist can pour out his anger and frustrations with God directly. There's one psalm, Psalm 137. Psalm 137 that is just filled with um, really violent imagery, angry imagery, and then it ends. (laughs) There's no turn to like, but you, God, will save the situation and now I love people. No, it just ends. I think that psalm is there so that people like you and me who struggle with anger can know that God knows what we sound like when we're furious. And he isn't scared to receive us. He wants, he would rather you, he would rather bear the brunt of your anger than for you to, Exact your anger out on others. And so, the first place that we, is, is the expression of your anger is, is before God. And then you can gently and healthily, after that point, hope to share that anger with others. And the last thing I want to talk about is we receive anger. You don't just express it, but you can receive someone's healthy expression of anger. Um, I'll use an honest example because uh, it's important. Um, uh, last couple weeks, I've not prioritized our family meetings very well. This has made my wife very angry. And so um, she's told me this. So when she says, Derek, it, it makes me angry that we haven't had a family meeting in the last two weeks. It, what it says to me is that you don't value our family. You don't value making sure that we have the stuff together and in its place as much as you value the stuff at church. And I said to her, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. You should be angry because that's exactly what I'm doing. Now, I don't always respond that well. <laughs> uh, I did this once, probably because I knew I'd be speaking on anger in a couple weeks. Um, but, but that is possible. It is possible for her to express her anger well and for me to receive it well. Um, the last thing I wanted to tell you is one or two ways to not do that. So can I just, by, by practical example, some ways uh, to, to not receive someone's healthy expression of anger when they come to us. Do not be defensive, okay? Um, Another example from my life once, Sue said, um, I'm really frustrated when you get angry. And I said something along the lines of, I wouldn't be angry if you weren't so controlling. Not my best moment, church. In case you're wondering, not my best moment. We worked through that one. Another another one is to say, "Well, well, I never intended that. Like, I didn't really, you know, I did this thing, but then this other thing happened. That's a way of also being defensive, of not recognizing, you know, just because, Sue, that really ended up hurting you and Fisher, I didn't intend it, so it's not my fault. That's another way of being defensive. It's not really owning. And then another one is, um, I'm sorry that you feel that way, which is is not an apology in case you think it is. It's not an apology. Um, We have freedom in the gospel to own the anger of our, Healthily expressed of our brothers and sisters so that we can be reconciled. That's how we create a culture uh, or curate reconciled relationships. He, he, here's a here's close. I just want to close with this. In Genesis chapter 4, the first recorded murder happens a brother rises up and kills a brother. Cain kills Abel. And do you remember what Cain asked God? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, yes, Christian, you are. And you are your enemy's keeper as well. And so I hope and pray that as we listen to the commandment, as we cultivate cultures of life, as we curate reconciled relationships, that maybe one day the city of Richmond will say of us, blessed is third church. They are peacemakers, truly They are children of God. Amen.